let me go ahead and get you to flip to Ephesians chapter 6, and then also put a, put a thumb in 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings, we're going to go there right off the bat, so you might want to flip there pretty quickly. And then uh, Colossians chapter 2. Let me just throw out those three, make sure you get those marked. We're going we're gonna to land in, in 2 Kings first, though. Okay, so we, we are to the last section of the book of Ephesians. Can you believe it, right? And so, now, now don't get too antsy, though, right? So, so this, <laughs> I, I've laughed just doing the research on, on this passage and reading some things this week. There was a, an old Puritan pastor named William Gurnall, and, and he wrote, let, let me just get this for you so I'll, I'll tell it rightly. He, he wrote 261 chapters on these 11 verses. What's wrong with that guy, right? Um, over 1,400 pages on, on those 11 verses. Um, one of my favorite preachers of the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote a 300-page kind of commentary on these 11 verses and then decided he needed to write a second volume to, to fill in the gaps and wrote another 300-page one, right? And, and so don't get too antsy. I think by probably next September we should be done with this one, right? And so, but it is going to take us most of September to kind of work through this passage and that there are some rich good things for us to know and, and truth for us to digest as it relates to these 11 verses. Second Kings chapter 6. Okay, so, so here's the scenario. If it starts with a really miraculous story. The sons of Elisha are, are going down to cut some, some wood and they, they loot, the, the axe basically breaks that they're using and the iron head falls into the water. Isaiah comes, throws a stick into the water. It just happens to go through the head of that axe and makes the iron float. So we're, we're automatically in a weird chapter, right? Okay, so this is where you pick it up in verse 8. It says, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servant, saying, At such and such a place shall, shall be my camp. So it's essentially, if you want to put this in, in, in coaching terms, that they have set up um, kind of a coach's meeting and, and they're making their plan. We're going there. We're doing this. Okay, so, so the coaches have, have decided. Verse 9, But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him. So, so this man of God is warning the king of Israel what the king of Syria is doing so that he saved the king of, of Israel himself more than once or twice. Okay, so if, if you want to put this kind of back in these sporting analogies, the other team is stealing the signals, right? So, so you've got one sideline that they're throwing the signals into their team. This is what we're doing. And somehow the other sideline knows what's happening, right? I mean, this is a bad day. I, I played quarterback in high school, and there was one game where uh, it literally seemed like the defense knew what we were doing. Like, we would get to the line of scrimmage, and like this the defensive line, he was barking like a dog, first of all, right? I don't know what that's about. You're not a dog. I'm not a dog. We're human beings. Okay. So the second thing, though, he, he would know exactly, he'd be calling out our play. Like, how does that happen? So, so this is the scenario here, where you've got the king of Assyria, he's calling the plays, the king of Israel, I mean, they know what's happening before they do it. Okay, so, and we know why, the man of God's telling them. Okay, so verse 11, and the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. I mean, I, I would be too, right? I mean, you've got a problem when you're going out to war people, or, or to, to beat people up, right? And, and they know exactly where you're coming from and what you're doing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? So, so he gets his people together, and he's wanting to know this question. Who's giving away the signals? I mean, whose problem is this here? You're about to get us all killed. Okay, so this was their response. Verse 12, 
And one of his servants said, none, my lord the king, it's not any of us, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. That's crossing, like, the, the, the line, right? There. I, mean, right, I mean, if there's a line that men don't cross, it's right there. That, that is not a line you step across. I mean, this guy knows the color of your underwear, right? I mean, he knows everything is happening in your bedroom. Verse 13, and he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. I don't know how that's going to work if he already knows the words in your bedroom, right? Okay, it was told him, behold, he is in, in Dothan. Okay, so verse 14. So he sent their horses and their chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, if I'm hunting, I'm probably going the same sort of a, a scenario here, right? I mean, a BB gun would have probably worked, but if you have a bazooka, let's send the whole army, right? I mean, so he sends the, the whole army, his, his entire army against this one guy to, get this, to kill this one guy. Okay, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, now just picture what's going on here. If you're the servant, you woke up and, and you see stationed all around the city aimed at you is this army. This is a bad day. There is panic in the air, right? I mean, th this is a desperate moment. Okay, and then um, this is what Elisha says back to the servant. Verse 17. He said, or 16, verse 16. Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, now put yourself back in the shoes of that servant. I mean, the, the old guy can prophesy really well, but his math is really jacked up, right? I mean, you've got you two, and, and then you look around and you've got an army around you. Two does not equal an army. It, it definitely doesn't equal more than an army, right? Okay, so put yourself in this scenario and then listen to what Elisha says back to him in verse 17. Okay, so do not be afraid, though more with us than with them. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said this, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Now, if I have a hope for the next couple of weeks, this, I think this would articulate it. That God might open our eyes to see that there is, there, there is more to reality than meets the eye. So, so he prays for this servant, open his eyes, God, that he may see. And, and then look at what happens. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So, so there is this moment where the servant thought he could see everything that, that he needed to see. He, he was thinking in terms of, I, I can see, I can touch, taste, feel, smell. Like, I, I, I've got all the senses I need to see reality. Like, I can see that, that we're two, there's an army. And then all of a sudden, God lifts the curtains, and he sees what's behind the curtain, right? I mean, he sees that his senses are deficient. And all of a sudden, there is this sixth sense that God gives where he opens up the curtain and this servant sees that there is much more to this world than meets the eye. And okay, now I wanted to lead in with this passage because I think that servant is us. I think we, we live and operate in such a way that, that what we can see, taste, touch, feel, uh, that, that is what we call real, Right? I mean, th this is the extent of, of reality for us. And my hope is that like this servant, that God might open up our eyes to see that there is more to life in this world and reality than what we can see. 
That, that there's more to this. The servant thought he had it pegged, but he had no idea what he was missing, right? And I think this is us. So let me just, I, basically, I'm going to give four kind of big true statements that, that kind of surround this issue to prep us for Ephesians 6 and the weeks to come. So this is the first one, that there is such a thing as a spiritual world. That there is such a thing as behind the curtain. There is such a thing that exists that you can't see. That there is an invisible world. And the Bible all the way through is going to call it more powerful than what you can see. So, so there is such a thing as a spiritual world that exists. There is, I'm going to say this clearly, there is a spiritual world, right? Okay. Now, when you get to Ephesians chapter 6, this is assumed. Paul doesn't go into like, you know, a chapter to describe this, to prove this. He just assumes it. Okay, so in their culture, this was, this was a, kind of a commonplace assumption. This is what all their people would believe. If you go back to Acts chapter 19, you see this play out when Paul first got to Ephesus. That the, the idea of, of a spiritual world was commonplace to them. Okay, so th- this is an assumption, a baseline issue. Okay, now I think it's worth noting here when we talk about a spiritual world. Now, I always like to point this out to Christians. that The longer you become a Christian, the more unaware of how weird you really are, right? Okay, now, now it is nowhere um, seen as clearly as when it comes to this issue of a spiritual world. So I, I used to have a seminary professor that he would say this statement to us um, periodically. Well, he, he would ask the question, what is the fundamental presupposition of a Christian? Basically, he's asking this. What's the foundational assumption that all Christians have? Now, I mean, just think about that one for a minute. The foundational assumption. Here, here was his response. Belief in the supernatural. We believe, I mean, just think about how, I mean, this can be a little weird, right? That we, we believe in the supernatural. We believe in a God. That is supernatural, right? I mean, we believe in, in angels and demons. We believe in a resurrection. We believe in a virgin birth. We believe in all of these things that are beyond what you can see, taste, touch, feel, Right? I mean, we, we believe in a supernatural world. Okay, now this is where the objections in our modern culture really start to fly, right? I mean, I, li- I had um, a, a kind of a run-in with a guy this week that literally, when it comes to this conversation, would look at me and think, you are crazy. I mean, you're crazy, right? Okay, so, so let me just deal with a couple of these objections real quick. And this is not exhaustive. I'm just going to hit two of them. Objection number one, that this is primitive, I mean, this is a primitive way to see life. I mean, this, you can kind of group this in with, with uh, tooth fairies and unicorns and leprechauns. Throw sashwash kind of in there just to round it out, right? I mean, this is in the same mode here. Okay, okay, so you've got this idea of primitive. So let me just kind of back up and describe what's happened over the last 300 years just to Western culture. Um, in the last two to 300 years, this thing called the Enlightenment has affected every one of us in here. It affects the way you think about things. Two or 300 years ago, just the predominant way that the Western culture thought dethroned God from the central place and, and dethroned him with reason. So, so now, for us to believe something, it's got to be scientifically proven, right? For us to believe something, we've got to be able to touch, taste, feel, hear, smell. We've got to be able to, to, to grab it. It's got to be tangible for us. Okay, so this, is, this affects how all of us think. Okay, now let me just kind of address two kind of responses back. And again, this is not thorough. This is just two quick responses. Number one is, is science can't prove or disprove the, belie- uh, the existence of the supernatural. It doesn't have the capacity to do that. I love science. It just doesn't have the capacity to prove or disprove this. It's not tangible. You can't just grab it. You can't just put it in a laboratory and measure it. Okay, so it can't prove or disprove this. And and so maybe um, the issue in, in, in it being real or not scientifically isn't, that's not the primary thing. It might be just an issue of our senses being deficient to grab and take in all of what reality is. 
All, all the components of reality. Okay, so you've got that on one part that science doesn't prove or disprove it. And you've got this on the other uh, side of this. A, a real devil, I, like I really believe a real devil is really fine with a real culture who is content to move him kind of into the realm of the primitive, into the realm of the you've got to be crazy, right? Like, I, I think that, that would be one of the schemes or ploys of Satan to kind of get a culture thinking in terms of that could not be real. I mean, that is leprechauns and unicorns right there. I mean, this is where you are. Okay, C.S. Lewis wrote, I, I think it's an incredible book which just deals on a devotional level with these issues. And basically, it's called Screwtape Letters. And in this, he, he, he jumps across to the other side and he writes from Satan's perspective. And so the, the book is basically a correspondence between an older seasoned demon. The, the, I mean, this guy has been around the block. I mean, he, he, is, he is seasoned. And he's writing to a trainee demon. And the trainee demon has a patient, a.k.a. a new convert. And, and so the, the whole book is written through this correspondence between this seasoned demon trying to, to kind of coach up and get this trainee up to speed with how we do our, kind of our, do our bidding here, our plots and ploys. Okay, now this is one of the things that, that he says um, throughout this book. Older demon writing to a, a younger one. He says, and this is on the existence of Satan. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. I mean, this plays right into what we're trying to do here. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. I think that's a profound moment right there, right? That, that maybe this is a plot employee of Satan to, to get us thinking that, that leprechauns and the devil are in the same boat, right? That this is a primitive idea. Okay, so now th those are two objections. Let me give you two dangers of just this whole conversation. And C.S. Lewis does a really good job of, of depicting these dangers in the preface of the screw tape letters. This is what C.S. Lewis says, and then we'll talk about it. He says, here are two dangers. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. So, so this is one error. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Okay, so here are the two errors, the two dangers. One, that we would be fanatical in how we think about demons, right? And, and think about the spiritual world. That, that we would be that person who is obsessed with it. I mean, they can't think about anything else that, that is fanatical with it. Okay, David Paulison in his book on, on basically it, it unites counseling and spiritual warfare together. He talks about this one counseling situation where this lady was obsessed with these things. I mean, she's casting demons out of everything, right? Okay, so, so she came in one time and her toaster was not working. She's trying to cast demons out of the toaster, Plug it in. You know, I mean, this isn't that complicated, right? Okay, so, so she's trying to cast demons out of everything. When her and her husband would fight, she's trying to cast demons out of her husband. I mean, it's the demon of bitterness, the demon of this, that. I mean, she's just going crazy. Their marriage implodes. And, and David kind of talks about on the other end, just looking at this, thinking that he, he could just imagine Satan peering through the window and, and laughing at their poisonous preoccupation with demons and the devil, Right? And so it is possible to go that way. And let me just say this too. There is crazy teaching when it comes to these things. Beware of what you read. 
I mean, I'm telling you, there is, I would even probably say most of the literature that you're just going to pick up on the bookshelf is going to be anti-biblical, anti-Christ exalting. And I think the Bible would look at it and call it heresy, that it's false teaching. It's not right, right? And so be careful on that. So that's one extreme. And then here's where I think most of us are, though. I think most of us live in, in the land of the forgetful. That we would all, like I think if you just did a poll of people that, that typically walk into a church like this on Sunday morning and you did a poll and said, do you believe in Satan, angels, demons? I mean, the whole deal. I, I think most people would say, yeah, I believe in it. But I think on the other side of this, I think if you ask them, okay, so, so when's the last time you thought about that? How does that work into your life? It, it's completely non-existent. So, so we don't think in terms of on, on, a, on a continuous basis, on a, on a normal basis, that there is a real devil a personal devil that is plotting and planning your destruction and misery and ruin. We don't think about that often. So I think it's easy for us in our naturalistic lenses, see, taste, touch, feel. I mean, this is what we, we believe. This is how we practically live to just forget it, to, to walk away from it as if it doesn't exist. So, so we mentally agree, but practically it's, it, we're, we're on a different world, right? Okay, so let me kind of walk through um, just with an illustration of how I think this plays out and how you can marry a, a, a practical awareness of this, but not being fanatical. Okay, so it's football season, so we'll just kind of couch this in the terms of football again, right? Okay, so if you want to consider yourself a quarterback, you, you take the snap and you drop back the pass, right? Okay, if you picture yourself in this sort of scenario, your primary issue is not the defense, Okay, now this is going to be a little bit simplistic, but your primary thing is not the defense. You don't plot and plan primarily based on defense. You primarily do that on the talent and the skills that you have, on the offensive strategy. And so our, when you drop back the pass, your primary thing that you're looking at is your receivers. Out of the peripheral, you're keeping track of the defense. You're keeping track of, here's the defensive lineman, I'm about to get killed, right? Um, here's the defensive back, this is where they're positioned. Here are the linebackers, here's where they are. But your preoccupation is not with the defense. Your preoccupation is with the offense. And I think this is how this practically works out, that we are preoccupied with God. I love how A.W. Tozer puts it, that we are to have a preoccupation with God. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what our life is supposed to be dominated by. But out of the peripheral, we are aware of how the schemes and plots and ploys of Satan are moving and, and shaping our life. Okay, so this is how these two practically play out. So there is a spiritual world. Okay, and there's some dangers involved, but there is a real spiritual world. Okay, now here's the second statement. Behind that one, there is not only a spiritual world, there is a spiritual war happening. So it's not just that there's, there's supernatural, it is there is a spiritual war that's going on. Okay, so, so it's not just that these things are all happy and doing, there is a war, a conflict that's happening. Okay, now I want to put this in the context, and, and you see this, by the way, in, in Ephesians chapter 6. This is what it's talking about here. But I want to put this in the context of, of the daily grind of your life. This isn't just the, the crazy and the extreme. This is in the context of life. So think about this in the context of Ephesians. Here's the book of Ephesians. It starts out the first three, gospel, or the first three chapters. This is the gospel. Okay, this is what you have and what you are in the gospel. You need to know Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. You need to know that well. You need to know, it tells you what you have, what you are. It, it is a beautiful display of the gospel. It defines the gospel for us. Okay, when you get to chapter 4, the, the, the theme shifts, and now it's talking about this gospel that is in you, how it begins to work out of you in the daily life that you're in. 
Because this is just how the gospel works out and work all these different arenas. Now, I want you to think about what it's saying. That the gospel, this is what you have and what you are. And then this is what it looks like displayed. Okay, think about this. Ephesians chapter 4. How beautiful is this? Okay, just think about a world that Ephesians 4.25. That there was no, like, falsehood. Everybody told the truth. I mean, think about a world that you always told the truth. That's, I mean, that would be a good place, right? I mean, you coming on down in, in verse 26, a, a world that does not have self-centered anger in it. That's a good world. Think about your home without anger in it. Okay, coming down, think about verse 28 where, where people don't steal, but they work hard so they'll have something to give to people in need. That's the depiction of a good world, right? Okay, coming on down that in verse 29 that our words are not corrupt, that we're not gossiping, slandering, backbiting. We're not malicious with our words, but our, our words impart grace to people. Think about if that was your life. Okay, in, in verse 31 and 32, that, that we're not um, bitter and, and wrathful and vengeful, but verse 32 is that, that we're tenderhearted, kind, forgiving one another. I mean, think about if your life was characterized by forgiveness. Okay, now go to chapter 5. It gets better, right? I mean, the, the world gets better here. In chapter 5, sexual immorality. Think about a world without sexual immorality. Think about your life without that. Okay, coming down, marriages. We, we spent three or four weeks on marriage. Think about if your marriage really reflected the glory of God well. I mean, think about husbands in here. Think about if you really, I mean, if you really jumped into the middle of that and you loved your wife like Christ loved the church, if you led in that way, if you nourished and cherished and, and you sacrificed and gave your life for her, if you were a good pastor to her. I mean, think about if that was a reality. 100% reality. Okay, wives, think about if on your side of marriage that you really reflected uh, the, the world's response, the church's response to Christ, that he's a satisfying savior in your marriage and how you followed and responded and honored and respected your husband. It gets even better though. I mean, th this is the life, the gospel movement. Okay, it gets better. Parenting. Think about a world where your, where your kids always respond well to you. They honor and obey everything you tell them to do. That would be beautiful, wouldn't it? Okay, think about a world where parents didn't provoke their kids to anger. Comes down, chapter 6. Think about this world where work, um, this, this work relationships, employer, employee was perfect. Employees worked hard. Employers were great, great bosses. They treated you fairly and justly. So, so here's my, okay, now think about this. Here's the question of Ephesians chapter 6 when you get into verse 10. Why is that so difficult? I look at that and say, okay, I believe it. That is God's design for relationships. This is God's design for our life. When the gospel works in us, this is what works out of us. Okay, I get that. I live that. I love that. I, I am all in. Chips are in. That's the life I want. I, I am going for it. Now here's the next question. Why is it that we spent four or five weeks on marriage and ours don't look a lot different today? Why is it that we can talk about work and how we work, our work ethic, all of that, and your work ethic probably doesn't look a lot different today than it did two weeks ago? Why is it that we can talk about parenting and all say, yes, that is what God has called me to. I mean, this is the design. I should be a good pastor of our family. And it probably doesn't look a whole lot more like that than it did three weeks ago. Why is that? Here is Paul's answer. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, that there is a real conflict. That is why. There is an actual real conflict happening. Okay, pick it up in verse 10. 
finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the plots, the ploys of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. It's not a physical thing. But, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, stand in the evil day, set up resistance in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. So there is a real devil that's waging a real war against real people. And that is why it is so hard for you to live well as a Christian. That is why it is so easy to know the gospel but not display the gospel. This is the reason for that. That there is an actual war, an actual conflict going on. And see, this is, like, this is probably one of the major misconceptions about spiritual warfare. Most people think about this in the, in, in the terms of the crazy and the extreme. Ephesians 6 places it right in the middle of the daily grind of your life. Husbands, how you treat your wife. Wives, how you respond to your husbands. Purity, lust, kindness, forgiveness. Those are spiritual issues. It's in the daily grind of life. Our enemies are threefold on three different fronts. We've got the flesh. It's an inward war with the flesh. We just sang about that. That we've got this flesh, this propensity to, to do evil. So, so wars against us. Okay, you've got an outward war with the world. And this is what we're going to talk about the next week. We've got an outward war with the world. These power structures and institutions, culture that is godless, that tries to de-god God out of our lives. And then you've got Satan who uses the flesh, uses the world to wreak havoc on us. So we've got an, an upward battle. This is spiritual warfare. It's in the daily grind of your life how you wake up and live tomorrow when you get out of bed. That is, this is, this is the sphere of spiritual warfare. This is what it looks like. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He, he says this about this awareness of, of the devil in the spiritual warfare. He said, I am certain that one of the main causes of the weak state of relationships today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, this being the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. This is not myth and legend. This is war and reality. That's what it is. It, okay, so it's in the daily grind of our life. There is a conflict. Okay, second piece of this, that there is um, this conflict. It is between two kingdoms. The conflict is between two kingdoms. Okay, now, now think about this with me. This, is, th this language is militaristic, right? I mean, th this language is, is, is out there. Okay, so let me make this clear. Th this is not calling for jihad, right? I mean, this is not the Bible. Okay, so let me emphasize the words here. It's not physical warfare. This is why we call it spiritual, bold, underline, start, spiritual warfare, right? Okay, th this is what, it's not physical, it's spiritual. Okay, so spiritual warfare, let me just give you a quick definition maybe that you could think about with it. It's, it's unseen kingdoms warring in unseen places, Okay, this is the idea of spiritual warfare. It's unseen kingdoms warring in unseen places. So the Bible sets up two kingdoms. You've got the kingdom of Satan. Okay, now th these are the words that, that the Bible attaches to Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. 
He, he's the God of this age, um, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Okay, he's the ruler of the world, John 12. This is the idea that, that, that the Bible places onto Satan. So he has a domain here. He's got a sphere of influence. He's got a kingdom that he's growing here. Okay, so you've got the kingdom of Satan, and then you've got the kingdom of God. Okay, this is in John 18 when Pilate is questioning Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight, but it's not of this world. It's not of flesh and blood. It's not here and now. It is not temporal. It is eternal, and it's spiritual. Okay, this is the kingdom of God. Now, when you think about history, history is the drama of these two kingdoms clashing and colliding. That's history. Okay, so, so you see it right off the bat in Genesis. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, align under the rule and reign of Satan. Satan establishes his kingdom. And, and then here's what God does. He looks at this world under the reign and rule of Satan. Okay, and he looks at that and he calls out a people for himself, the people of Israel. He, he calls them out and they are going to be light in the darkness to pierce darkness. This is the clashing of kingdoms. History has got the marks of this. So just take Noah. Okay, God has called Noah out. And when we're first introduced to Noah, it says that he's upright and he's blameless. Okay, so, so he is called, at, he is ready to go. He, he is a light. But even some of the brightest lights fell, right, and stumbled. So, so you've got Noah two chapters later. His kids walk in on him in his tent and he's passed out drunk and naked. T- take um, David. Okay, this is the man that we'd call after God's own heart. This is a bright light in the people of God piercing darkness. But even the brightest ones had their, had their days, right? And, and so um, when you think about David, he is also the guy who, who commits adultery and then plots murder for the, for the girl's husband, right? I mean, that is wicked. That is demonic. I mean, that, that is not good, right? Okay, so this is, this is the kingdom of, of the Satan colliding with the kingdom of God. And, and one day, the, the kingdom of God comes in such force that the kingdom of Satan starts to crumble around it. And, and so one day, a perfect man, Jesus, comes, and, and he lives a perfect life, lives, dies a perfect death, is resurrected. And, and in that moment, he begins to beat back the kingdom of Satan. Okay, so, so history is, is these two kingdoms colliding and this throws you right in the middle of it, that the conflict is personal. Look at verse 12 in Ephesians. Verse 12. You might circle the word we and the word wrestle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against these things. So, so this conflict is personal in nature. Okay, when that word wrestling, that, that is hand-to-hand comics. Only time it's used in the New Testament. It, it is up-close personal conflict. This is not like lobbing grenades from, from the, the safety of distance, right? This is not lobbing artillery in from a few miles. This is in the octagon. I can smell him. He can smell me. I can punch him. He can touch me. It's, it's up-close combat. That's the idea here. And it's personal. It is we, you, me. It is personal. Th- this is you and I involved in the war. You cannot watch this thing. I mean, it is coming for all of us. I mean, you can watch it, but, God, but Satan's not waiting for you to prepare yourself. He'll kick you on the couch just like he will if you've got the armor on. Okay, so, so this is the idea. It's personal. And listen, this idea of, of war, this imagery of war, it's not the only imagery of the Christian life in, in the scriptures, but it's a prevalent one. 
I mean, the, the scriptures have a, re- a reoccurring theme of life is war. If you want to live the gospel out, it is difficult. It's a struggle. It's a fight. I mean, there is a a battle going on for that. So let me give you some of the personal implications of this in the scriptures. Some of this imagery in in the New Testament of of showing this life is war, life is struggle. And by the way, let let me just make this point too, that when when God saves you, he, he doesn't remove you from conflict. And this is what a lot of people believe, and it causes them a lot of, it really hurts their progress in the Christian life. He doesn't remove you from conflict. When he saves you, he puts you on the winning side of conflict. Does that make sense? So, so we need to know, as we're trying to live out these gospel things, that, that we're, I mean, it's in the middle of a, of a war. I mean, it's in the middle of bullets flying. This is the context that we live this thing out in. So he doesn't remove you from the battle. He puts you on the winning side of the battle. And the winning side still loses people. The winning side still gets shot. The winning side still has to fight. The winning side still has to search out pockets of resistance to destroy. All that's hard work. All that's a struggle. Okay, now now look at this imagery in the New Testament when it comes to this. Hebrews 12, 4, it's a struggle against sin. Look at what it says here. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So it's depicted as sin is war. I mean, it is warring against you. Okay, um, 1 Peter 2, 11, it's a war for your souls. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And look at this statement, which wage war against your soul. This is what sin does. It wages war against who you are. Jude chapter 3, it's a war for faith. He says, I found it necessary to write uh, appealing to you to contend, to fight for, to struggle for the faith. Okay, in Philippians 127, it's a struggle for the gospel. Paul says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And coming down to the end of that verse, he says, with one mind, when I come and see you again, here's what I want to see. With one mind, you're striving together, side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's striving, it's struggling, it's a fight. This gospel life that God has called us to live does not come without casualties. It does not come without wounds. It does not come without scars. And and then you see this imagery in the New Testament with, with soldiers. Okay, and look at this in 1 Timothy 6. He says, we fight the good fight. Okay, this, is, this is Paul's admonition to Timothy. And then in 2 Timothy um, chapter 4, this is at the end of Paul's life, him looking back and him saying this, I have fought the good fight. I've, and this is what the fight looks like. It looks like finishing the race. This is the fight. This is spiritual warfare. It is lived in the daily monotonous grind of your life. That's where it's lived, for you to finish the race. You know what I mean? People pull up short of the finish line. That's a spiritual issue. Okay, and then he says this, I've kept the faith. It is a struggle. Your faith is in under attack. It is always going to be a struggle. It is always going to have these flaming darts trying to pierce it. Okay, this is the imagery of the New Testament. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.4 gives this idea that we have weapons and armor. Um, Ephesians 6 is probably the most clear depiction of all these coming together. Everything you need to fight this battle. But this is the imagery of the Christian life. That you are in a war. These things that we want to see lived out in our family, in our ki- these things are under attack. They have enemies that have opposed them. Okay, and last little statement under this idea of the war is that the consequences could not be more significant. There are consequences to this war. 
The souls of, of mamas and daddies are at stake. Look at me here. The souls of little boys and little girls all across this planet are at stake in this. The souls of grandmas and grandpas. The, these are the casualties. Th- this is what's at stake. The glory of God is at stake. The good of people is at stake. The eternal destination of men and women. This is the war. And it's a spiritual war. This is what's at stake in this. Okay, third big thought. There, There is a spiritual world. There's spiritual warfare. There's a spiritual war going on. And here's the third one. There is a spiritual enemy. There's a spiritual enemy. Look at verse 11. It just basically introduces you to him by by saying, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you can stand against the schemes of of the devil. Okay, so so now Paul didn't go into like a systematic theology of of the devil, of of any of these things. And, And why is that? Primarily, it's because his people knew these things. I mean, this was not as foreign of a conversation as it is to you and I. This was much more normal awareness, normal life. So I think I want to catch us up to speed and make sure that we've got a working kind of theology of what the Bible says about these things. So let me just kind of run through some biblical awareness, some biblical theology of Satan. Number one, Satan was created. So, so Satan is a created being. He is not equal in, in power with God, but, but opposite in purity. That, that is not Satan. He is created. Therefore, he is dependent upon God. He is not autonomous from God. He is not independent of God. He is underneath the rule and reign of God because God created him. Okay, Satan is not all powerful. He has power. Okay, there is no question about that. That is why um, the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this age, the god of this world. That is why those sort of of phrases are used to describe him. He is powerful, but he is not all powerful. At the end of the day, and I want you to see this, at the end of the day, Satan has a long leash from God. But but that leash is on Satan, from God. He, He is created. Ultimately, at the end of the day, all of Satan's plots and ploys serve the purposes of God. This is Satan. He is created. Okay, now Romans 12 tells us that that there was a war in heaven that that rather than submitting to the reign and rule of God, he rebelled against God. He led one-third of the angels with him. Satan is their head. He is their workers. And now he, he basically they're cast down to earth where this, ra- this war still rages. And so now Satan has a well-organized army of workers that plot and plan the, the defamation of the glory of God and the destruction of the people of God. This is the idea. This is what Satan is doing. Okay, now he is not all places at all times. Satan is not God. He is not everywhere. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times, but Satan is not. He can be in one place at one time. So you hear sometimes people say stuff like this. Man, Satan was really on me today. He's only one place, and chances are he's got bigger fish to fry. Wouldn't you agree? Right? I mean, probably not on me today. Okay, so, so but, but he can put his demons, his organized little structure of, of workers, anywhere he wants. So he's not everywhere, but he's got people in a lot of places, right? Okay, so, so you've got this idea that he's not omnipresent, he's not all-powerful, and he's not all-knowing. God is all-knowing, but Satan is not all-knowing. He can't know all things. He can't foreknow things. He can't know things that he's not told. 
Right? Okay, so, so he doesn't share that with God. He is not all-knowing. And again, he's got people in a lot of places hearing a lot of things, so he's got great insight, great wisdom into how you work, into how I work. If you're around for a couple of thousand of years watching how human beings interact and play out, you'd probably have a pretty good idea of what you're going to do too. But he doesn't know all things. He can't predict the future. He is a created being, okay? So, so he's created by God. Okay, now here, here's the second one. Satan is cunning. When you first um, are introduced to him in in Genesis chapter 3, the first words that it says about him is that he was a serpent and that he was the most crafty of all the beasts of the field, right? Remember that? Okay, now when you look at the names of Satan, like accuser, tempter, I mean, you you see this right off the get-go that he is very cunning. Uh, His primary plot is to deceive people like you and I from following Jesus. This is the primary strategy of warfare. How can I de-God God from their life? How can I deceive them to living apart from God? Now, you remember what, what I mean, this was his first ploy in the garden, right? He comes up to Adam and Eve, and, and he questions to Eve the reign and rule of God in her life. He, he, he questions it. And, and so he says, surely God, God would not do that. I, I mean, you can be like God. You, you can be, be like God, so then you won't need God. Then you'll be independent of God. Then you'll, then you'll live a life that, that you'll be God. And, and the same sin that kicks Satan out of heaven, this pride, this I want to be God, I'll rebel, I'll set up my own rule and reign, is the same sin that, that kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. I mean, he is a cunning enemy. He, he, he makes us believe lies that just aren't true. He, he's cunning. Okay, but, but it gets even worse than that. He's also um, controlling. So, so when he sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, when they aligned themselves under the reign and rule of Satan, when they, when they AWOLed out of God's reign and rule and moved over here, at, at that moment, Satan's influence, his kingdom on the planet began. He started to establish his controlling influence. Okay, now this is why, like 1 John 5, 19 would say something like this, that the whole world is under the influence, the power of Satan. Okay, now, now I, I want to make this clear. That Satan doesn't make anybody do anything. He, he doesn't have the power to make you do something. This is how he works. He promotes, he entices, and then he empowers promotes, entices, and empowers. This is how he works in your life. He promotes sin. He promotes. He just throws the question out. You you could be like God. He entices, and and then he he empowers. Jump at it. Do it. This is how Satan works. So when we look at all evil, error, hatred, racism, violence, we can trace this back to the promoting, enticing, and empowering work of Satan. This is, where, this, is the, this is where these things flow through. So, so all of these power structures, all these institutions, people, nations that are anti-God, that, that can be traced to this controlling influence of Satan who, who just promotes, entices, and empowers rebellion against God. Okay, now if we stop there, I would say it's pretty bleak, right? But, but here's the, the fourth thing I want to say, and this is kind of the last one here. It doesn't stop there. The final word is never with Satan. The final word is not with Satan. The the final word is with a victorious king. That's the final word. That that we serve a victorious Christ. 
This is the final word. I mean, if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, the, the atmosphere and the attitude, uh, it's victorious. I mean, the atmosphere and the attitude is looking at this from a winning perspective. Okay, so this is where you see this play out. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the deception of Satan, but at the end of that chapter, we see the final demise of Satan. All in one chapter. Let me read um, this demise of Satan. And, and it'll be up on the screen for you. Hold tight there. We're about to go to Colossians 2, so you might be flipping there though. Okay, this is Galatians. Or Genesis chapter 3, this is, this is the prediction of this demise of Satan. It says this, the Lord uh, God said to the serpent, this is the serpent's curse, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then listen to this. This is called the Proto-Evangelion. This is the first gospel, the seed of the gospel. Look what it says. He shall bruise. Some translations say crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so here's what's happening there. God is putting his cards on the table and he's saying, listen, this is how this is going down. There's going, to be a, a, there's going to be a man, a, a person, a, this one that's going to come from the seed of the woman. And, and, and he is going to crush. He is going to defeat. He, he's going to conquer you. This is the irreversible reality of how this is playing out. This is how this is going to go down. And then Colossians paints this in vivid colors to show how, how this conquering Jesus comes. And look what it says in Colossians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen for you as well. And you... You and I, who were dead in our trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh. He's saying this, when you are born, you are born under the rule and realm of Satan. This is your kingdom. And he's saying, this is how you started. You were dead. Ephesians 2 makes this really explicit when it says, you were following the prince of the power of the air. This is the state that we are naturally in. But God, so, so you, who, who, that's where you were, but God made, a li- made you alive together with him. And this is what God did to do that. Having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the, the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands, he set aside, he set all of those aside, having nailed it to the cross. So this is what God is saying here, that, that you were under the reign and rule of Satan, but it's worse than that. Not only were you under the, the, the wrong kingdom, fighting in the wrong army, but, but your sin was stacked up against you. Your sin was set over you to such a degree that it was condemning you, crushing you. This is the reality for every believer that we stand condemned in God's court. We are legally held liable and accountable for our sin. But here's the beauty of it. That sin that was stacked against us was stacked on Satan, or on Jesus, that, that sin that condemned us was, was the one that condemned Jesus on the cross. That same sin that sent us out of the garden sank the nails into the wrist of Jesus. This is the reality. He, he nailed all of those things to the cross. Okay, and then look at this last phrase here in verse 15. He, Jesus, look at this. This armed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. 
This is the reality of the cross. This is what theologians call the Christus victor. That in Christ, we have a victor. This is Colossians 2.15. That in Christ, on the cross, he disarmed all the weapons of Satan. All the plots and ploys are seen through. All the plots and ploys are laid bare. That on the cross, Christ is the victor. Because of the cross, those in Christ can now stand as Ephesians will tell us to do. We can set up resistance towards Satan. We can put on this armor and say no to Satan. The gospel gives us everything we need to counteract every ploy that Satan has. On the cross, Jesus defanged, declawed Satan. This is the Christus victor. This is at the end of the day, the last word is not with Satan. It was with Jesus on the cross. This is the reality for us, that he has disarmed these rulers. And then he uses this word triumph. And every person in the Roman world would know exactly what he's talking about. This imagery of a triumphing over them is what a Roman army would do after they have conquered an army. They would come back into a celebrating city and they would take the king of the army that has been conquered, all of his subjects, all of the spoils, and they would tie them to the general's chariot and they would parade them through a celebrating city. And on the cross, it's saying that Jesus triumphed over every enemy. That, that he literally, on the cross, and, and think about this, in the moment that looked like, in this humiliating moment that looked like defeat for Jesus, this was the moment that Satan was being tied to the chariot where he would be drugged through a celebrating church. This is the picture. The last word is not with Satan. It's with a victorious king. Okay, now, now hear this next word though. Satan has been defeated, but Satan is not yet destroyed. We look forward to a day in Revelation 20 where it clearly displays the destroying of Satan. But, but as we, we, we are a people between the times. Satan is dying, but not yet dead. Conquered, but not yet crushed. You know what that makes him? Dangerous. Desperate, right? I mean, think about a wounded animal. I mean, they're, they're dangerous, right? Because they're desperate. I mean, it, it's as if Satan has turned into a kamikaze pilot that knows he is on a one-way mission, and that mission is to create as much havoc as possible in your life and mine. Th th this is the idea. Okay, so let me give you three implications, and, and we're out. Implication number one. Consider the work of Satan in your life. Let me ask you the question. Do you know how Satan's working in your life? Do you know that? Do you know what he's up to in your life? I, and, and remember, this is in the context of the normal grind. This is not, oh, there was an exhortation. Th this is the normal grind of your life. Let me ask you the question. Is Satan working through sexual immorality? Is Satan working through your words where you set up um, gossip and slander and backbiting? I mean, is he working in pride in your life, in unforgiveness? Do you know unforgiveness? It, that is rooted in, dem in the demonic. That, that is Satan's work in your life. These are the schemes of Satan in your life. When, when you hold grudges, I mean, when you act as if people are below you, th these are the works of Satan in your life. Think about anger. Are you an angry person? I mean, do you just erupt periodically? 
I mean, this is where, like in Ephesians um, chapter 4, is going to say, anger is a foothold of the devil. He finds these small cracks, these small crevices, plants seeds of sin in them that will one day be reaped with your destruction. Okay, this is how Satan works. In ordinary, the ordinary grind of life, is there low-grade simmering lust in your life that, that really nobody knows about, but there's perversion, there's pornography Husbands, how about your marriages? Is Satan working in your marriages? I mean, is there a coldness, a lack of communication? Is there a, a, a thing where he will use tones and expressions? There's ways you go about operating that are creating war in your house. These are the schemes of Satan. Uh, men in the room, are you lusting after other women? Do you know that's a scheme of Satan to sow sin into your heart that will one day be reaped in adultery? How about our ladies in the room? In the way you respond, the way you're fought, has Satan started to work and weave sin and these seeds of sin in your marriage? I mean, is he, is he in, has he found cracks and crevices to plant these things in? Do, do you fantasize and dream about a different husband? Because those are seeds of sin that Satan plants in you that will one day reap. I mean, is he working in these ways? I mean, is he, is he in these areas? How about parenting? I mean, he, he loves to, to jump right in the middle of families. Um, teenagers in the room. In the way you honor and obey, the way you think about your parents. Do you think hard thoughts about your parents? I mean, these are schemes of Satan. I mean, how about this one? Just believing things that we know are lies. I mean, how about that? This is every person in here. Listen, do, do we believe things that we just know are lies? Listen, a lie can be very destructive as soon as it's believed, right? It doesn't matter that it's a lie if you believe it. And, and so do you listen to, to that conscience that just rolls in your head that's always accusing, that's always speaking in the second person? Things like this, you're an idiot. You're a loser. You don't deserve Jesus. You don't deserve your husband. You don't deserve your wife. You don't deserve life. Why don't you kill yourself? I mean, you're worthless. I mean, these are all what we would call accusations. This is spiritual warfare. When you listen to that, you are walking in the schemes of Satan in your life. I mean, this is why he is called the accuser. So are we aware of, of, of Satan's plots and ploys? And here's the great thing. Let me say this again. Ephesians chapter 6, the tone is victorious. The tone is put on your armor and st- set up resistance and stand. Resist it. So God has given us everything we need to stand against every plot and ploy. So, so consider how, how Satan might be at work in your life. Secondly, consider your kingdom. We're all born under, naturally, we're born under the kingdom of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We are born with a natural resistance toward God. We, we are born with a natural rebellious heart toward God. And here's the beauty of the gospel, is that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That Christ died a brutal death that you deserved. He, he stacked your condemnation on himself. The sin stacked against you was stacked on him. So he could bring you in and make you a friend. More than that, so he could adopt you into the family. Where you could be sons and daughters of that victorious king. This is the gospel. 
So consider what kingdom you're in. If you have not surrendered your life, trusted and treasured in Jesus, you're fighting in the wrong army. You're fighting in the losing army. And, and there's eternal consequences of that. And last thing, I think it's, it's good for us to consider our church. To consider our church. We are at war. We're not at peace. Listen to this. We are not in peacetime. We are at wartime. We are between the times. He's dying but not dead. That's where we find ourselves. So here's what that means for us. It creates a posture in our life. Okay, so, so in wartime, think about the demeanor. Faces know that the war is serious. I mean, faces and the demeanor show that lives are at stake. Eternal situations and destinations are at stake. The demeanor reflects that. The pace is urgent. The, the war is now. We use our resources, our time, our energies, our all leverage for the war. We forego some of life's luxuries for most of war's victories. Okay, th this is the posture of a person in wartime. And let me ask you the question, is this the posture of our church? And it will not be the posture of our church if it is not the posture of your life. Is this the posture of your life? Is there an active wartime mentality in how you're living? Is there urgency to, to put sin to death in you? Are you coexisting with sin, acting as if it's not a problem? I mean, are you just coinciding with, just kind of leaving it there? I mean, there should be urgency in us to put sin to death. There should be urgency in us to bring the gospel to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, into our family. There should be urgency in these things. So, so for some of us in here, this is the call out of, out of Ephesians chapter 6. To stand. That, that you are sitting watching the war while it's raging. While people are losing their lives, and, and the call is to stand, to put on the armor, to stop sitting, to get involved, and get in the game here. Okay, th that's for some of us. We need to hear this. It needs to sit on us that if we are sitting, we are suffering defeats. That needs to sit on a lot of us in here. For others of you in here, man, I just want to leave you with this encouragement. That you have been in the trenches, blood, sweat, and tears have been pouring, Right? And here is the tendency that happens when you're that person. The tendency is to sit back and to think that the answer is, man, I just need to, to retreat and relax. I need to stop resisting and start resting. Okay, now look at me here. I want everybody to look at me. If this is you, this is the tendency. I've been in it and I'm tired. Look at me. That the peace and the rest you long for is coming. But it is not now. Th this is wartime. And in wartime, we put the armor on and we resist. We fight. We bleed. We sweat. We work as hard as we possibly can for the sake of every victory. But there will be a day where we exchange the armor of war for the garments of a wedding feast. And in that day, we get peace. That's a joyful feast. It's a joyful feast with Jesus. But until then, we fight. Amen? Let's pray.
God, we love you. And God, I pray for so many of my brothers and sisters in this room who I love so, so much. God, I pray um, just against Satan's plots and ploys. God, I pray for an active awareness of where he's at work. God, I pray for an active awareness of, of our armor that you bestow to us. God, I pray for an active awareness that we have at, on, on our team, our commander, is Christ the victor. God, I pray for an awareness of that, knowing that you have defanged and declawed, knowing that you have disarmed and triumphed over. So God, I pray, God, I pray for that. God, I pray over the next couple of weeks as we look at these plots and ploys, God, that you would give us great wisdom and how to stand and how to put up resistance. God, I pray for brothers and sisters in here who are believing lies, who, who they hear second person accusations and they believe them. God, I pray for where, where, where just the ordinary spiritual attacks are happening in marriages and in families. God, in personal hearts and lives. God, I pray against those and I pray for your power over them. God, help us to learn the gospel so we'll know how it counteracts them. And God, I pray for those who are not under your rule and your reign yet. God, I pray for those who are in the wrong kingdom. God, that this might be a day where we hold up our lives and surrender it, trust and treasure in you, and declare our allegiance to the great and victorious King. It's in your great and gracious name that we pray.